Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. The House passes an historic climate change bill, but it has a bitter pill for developing countries to swallow. A carbon tariff. Experts say that could derail an international agreement. We're a lot less powerful than we used to be, and China's getting more powerful by the year. And it's a fruitless strategy for us to think we can continue leading the world by threatening other countries. Protecting jobs and the climate. Also, saving dying cities by bulldozing the rundown parts. It's the idea of the county treasurer for Flint, Michigan. He says residents have two choices. Stay where you are and be surrounded by something more beautiful, or take that value that you have invested in your property and transfer it into a neighborhood that looks a lot more like the neighborhood maybe that you grew up in. Greening the Rust Belt and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. And I'm Jeff Young. The U.S. Senate will soon start work on the historic global warming bill that narrowly passed the House of Representatives. Democratic leaders say they hope action in Congress will improve the odds of getting a climate change treaty later this year. But a controversial section of the bill limiting free trade could make it harder to get an international agreement. A last-minute deal with industrial state Democrats added what are essentially carbon tariffs on some products imported from countries that do not take steps to cut emissions. That appeased some industry and labor interests who fear a carbon cap could cost jobs. Here's how United Steelworkers President Leo Girard explained it. This is about making sure that as we move to the green economy, that we're not putting our jobs up for bid to China, where for every unit of production, they create one, two, three, or four times as much carbon, and we're not going to be a part of giving away our economic future. The tariff wouldn't kick in until 2020, but still, President Barack Obama calls it protectionism and wants it out of the climate bill. And China's Department of Climate Change director, Li Gao, warns carbon tariffs would violate world trade rules and could spark a trade war. If the event countries set the barrier in the name of climate change, set the barrier for change, I think it's a disaster. It's not fair. Associate Professor Steve Charnovitz studies the links between trade and the environment at George Washington University's law school, and he's with us now. Professor Charnovitz says the Chinese official makes a good point. It's not fair for a lot of reasons. It's not fair to Americans because it was written a few hours before the House passed the bill and no one had time to see it. And internationally, I think it's unfair because the United States unilaterally prescribes a certain formula that other countries have to meet. You know, there's a multilateral process in the climate negotiations that's been going on since 1992 to devise an international agreement to deal with climate. And for, you know, most of the last eight years, the United States was not a uh, productive part of that process. So for us to come in in 2009 and start threatening other countries, I think, is, is unfair. So what might this mean for the efforts to craft some international agreement that would necessarily have to bring in the Chinas, the Indias, the Brazils of the world? Well, it's not going to be helpful. I think getting them to cooperate is going to be hard in any event. 
But if we're threatening trade measures against them that are unilaterally prescribed simply by the United States, then I think it makes it much harder. But what about the arguments that uh, industry and labor groups make here that uh, say essentially, hey, why should we risk losing our jobs just to have the same products made only with a lot more carbon emissions overseas? Well, that's a legitimate, a legitimate concern. If some countries don't participate in reducing greenhouse gases, then those like the United States that do participate will have higher costs, and that will lead to some disadvantage in particular industries. But it's not clear what the overall impact of the bill is going to be on the U.S. economy. I don't know that I'd call it a trade war, but it could also lead to other countries doing the exact same thing. I mean, they could pass bills like the Waxman bill, Uh, applying to U.S. imports based on their own idiosyncratic formulas for what they consider to be appropriate action by the United States. Well, the president has spoken out against uh, this uh, trade aspect of the bill while endorsing much of the rest of the bill. Now the Senate's going to uh, take a whack at things. Where do you think things are headed here with uh, climate change and free trade? I would guess the Senate, if they're able to pass a bill, it will contain some trade measure the bill the Senate was considering last year, the so-called Lieberman-Warner bill, did have trade measures. So I think that's probably part of the formula. But it's possible they would water down the House bill. The way the bill was written, the president is really mandated to take these trade measures. And that would be challengeable in the World Trade Organization. That is, China could bring a lawsuit against the United States. And what do you think the World Trade Organization uh, might rule if this case were brought? I think it's clear the bill violates the general agreement on tariffs and trade. And if the United States were to claim a defense under the environmental exception, that defense by the United States would fail because the way it's written by the House, it's aimed at promoting a level playing field. And trying to level producer costs is not a legitimate grounds for invoking the environmental exception in the World Trade Organization. So the smart approach is to try to negotiate with China on not only on getting them within the system, which we've been doing, of course, but also on questions of how we're going to deal with competitiveness problems with countries that don't participate. Does it not help, though, to negotiate softly but have that big stick of the carbon tariff if, if they don't get on board? I wouldn't rule out in the long run the use of potential trade measures against countries that persist in being free riders. But to threaten with the stick this early in the negotiations uh-huh. uh, is clearly wrong. I mean, the United States basically was not participating seriously in negotiations over the past eight years. And now this administration says we're back. But if we come back with, with saying we're back and we have trade sanctions against others, uh, it looks so hypocritical. So this might be an appropriate tool to have in the toolbox, but it's not the one you should pull out at the first. Absolutely, we should not. The United States has a, has a long history of threatening unilateral measures against other countries that don't conform to what we think they should do. And the United States got away with it for a long time because we were the most powerful country economically in the world. But we're a lot less powerful than we used to be. And China's getting more powerful by the year. And in order for climate change to be addressed, uh, you've got to have cooperation of all the major emitters. It's a global environmental problem, and, and if it's going to be solved, it's going to require a global environmental solution. 
Professor Steve Charnovitz uh, researches the links between trade and the environment as part of his work at the George Washington University Law School. Thanks very much for joining us. Okay, thank you very much. According to Energy Secretary Stephen Chu, when it comes to saving money and growing our economy, energy efficiency isn't just low-hanging fruit, it's fruit lying on the ground. And so President Obama has scooped up this fruit and is serving up new rules for light bulb efficiency. To discuss this, we have Kateri Callahan, the president of the Alliance to Save Energy. Hello, Kateri. Hi, Steve. How are you? Good. Uh, President Obama and his Energy Secretary Stephen Chu have now announced new lighting standards that some are saying this is the U.S.'s greatest push towards saving uh, electricity. How pleased are you with these standards? Uh, We're delighted. This is yet another marker in a march toward a clean energy future that the president announced he was going to take us on, and by golly, he's doing it. The, it's, it's really interesting when you think about little light bulbs. Um, you know, I, I liken it to David and Goliath. I mean, they look small. How much energy could you really save? And it turns out that what the president announced yesterday will be the largest energy saving standard that any administration has ever put forward. These standards, over once they go into effect in 2012, within 30 years, we will save enough energy and enough greenhouse gases that are the equivalent of taking 166 million cars off the road, according to the president. So that's a profound impact on our energy use. Now, how much further could they have gone in setting these standards? They could have gone further. There were some studies done and and technical studies they could have moved to more efficient bulbs than they did. But I got to tell you, Steve, this is pretty darn good. The standards apply to two different categories of light bulbs. One are fluorescent tube lighting um, that you see commonly in offices and stores and factories. And the improvement, they're moving from a what they call a T12 tube, which is a basically they're going from an inch and a half round tube down to an inch round tube. Those smaller fluorescents save about 15% on energy compared to the larger. And the other category is um, what they call incandescent reflector lamps or IRLs. And these are commonly what you see in recessed lighting or some people call it canned lighting and track lighting. And for those, there's going to be a 25% improvement in the energy efficiency. So it's pretty significant. Looking over this rulemaking, this doesn't go into effect until 2012. That's, what, two and a half years Mm -hmm. from now. What about getting this into place sooner? Well, the light bulbs are available now, Steve, and the issue with standards and having them delayed from the time they're announced to the time they actually take effect is to allow the manufacturers to scale up production or those who may not be producing the more efficient products to be able to tool up to produce those and also to allow for time for stock to be used for people that have, you know, stock piled some of these things and to get them out of the market system. So it's very, very typical that there's a delay in the start of standards so that people can get ready for them. So how do you enforce something like this? I mean, I'm wondering if one creates a light bulb police here. I mean, I could use a light bulb police in my house, but only for those who snatch the light bulbs and the light doesn't go on. 
It, it won't be uh, it won't be enforced on consumers. No one's going to come into your house and look at what kind of lights you have. It really is all about uh, getting them out of the marketplace so you don't have the opportunity to buy them. And so when you burn out, let's, let me assume for a minute you got some track lighting in your den. When those track lights burn out, if they burn out after 2012, you will no longer be able to choose the most inefficient products that you could today. You're probably still likely to have choices. There'll be more and less efficient bulbs, but they'll meet a minimum efficiency standard. So that's the way, and it's imposed upon the manufacturers, and they're just simply not allowed to sell the products that don't meet those standards. What about the mercury that's in compact fluorescent bulbs? Right. Well, there are standards for that that have to be met, and the good news is that the mercury levels in light bulbs that are being produced is actually going down. And it is an issue, but it is one that can be dealt with. The EPA has guidelines about how to properly dispose of CFLs that have because they do have some mercury in them, how to clean up after an accident where a CFL breaks. It is an issue. Is it a showstopper? Certainly not. And the interesting thing is that there's more mercury, that airborne mercury that goes into the air from the power plants that are providing electricity to incandescent bulbs far more than there is in the CFLs that are using the electricity. Kateri Callahan, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Kateri Callahan is president of the Alliance to Save Energy. And for more information on the new light bulb standards, go to our website, LOE.org. Coming up, destroying part of the village in order to save the rest of it. Can smart bulldozing make Flint, Michigan better? Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Bigger no longer means better, at least not for Flint, Michigan. What was a thriving city in the heyday of General Motors is now torn by severe unemployment and abandoned houses. Flint's population is now half of what it was, and more and more people pack up and leave every day. With the tax base melting like ice on a hot summer day, Dan Kildee, a lifelong city resident who is also county treasurer, came up with a novel idea. How about organizing the downsizing of Flint in ways that revitalize and green the community? He's on the line now. So, Dan, please, can you take us first for a virtual walk around the north end of Flint? Uh, what would we see? What you'd see is you'd see pockets of really strong neighborhoods and, you know, four or five houses or even three or four blocks, maybe five blocks in a row where everybody's doing their best and they're trying and they're keeping their neighborhood together. And then you'll run into a street with one or two houses occupied and maybe four or five or eight or ten abandoned houses and then a bunch of empty lots in between. And there doesn't seem to be any real order to it. And so, you know, the problem is the people who live close to that abandonment, you know, they have a life that just isn't, it's not fair to them. It's not fair that they've invested their lives and their money in their house. And because of things well beyond their control, they're surrounded now really by a lot of ugly property. So, you know, that's really what we're trying to get at. So how do you win over residents? Um, you know, if you look there at the north end, the north side there of, of Flint, this is uh, largely a community of color. And uh, you folks who are talking about this are largely, you know, the white uh, governing structure there. Uh, right. How have they gotten involved in this, this planning process today? 
And when I first started thinking about this, I was a little worried about mentioning this idea of planned, you know, planned shrinkage in certain areas. Let me tell you, the people who live in the neighborhood, they're way ahead of us. They know. It's more about helping them on their own street, in their own neighborhood. There's got to be a high degree of public participation in a very public planning process that leads to this ultimate design. That's one. Second, not one person should ever lose their house if they don't want to. 100% voluntary is, is the only way this can work. So I want them to have a choice. Stay where you are and be surrounded by something more beautiful, but it's a low-density environment. It's not the urban environment. Or take that value that you have invested in your property and transfer it into a neighborhood that we can sustain, that looks a lot more like the neighborhood maybe that you grew up in. I want to visualize this. I mean, it's if you knock down a house, it just makes a vacant lot. Um, what do you do to re- rehabilitate this land to make it more attractive? Well, we have a, a number of things we do. In some cases... We simply let the land go back to nature. Nature does wonderful things. Takes something that's ugly and turns it into to natural beauty. Sometimes nature needs a little help, though. And in those cases, we can bring in uh, wildflower seeds. We can bring in trees. We can actually engage the neighbors. If we knock down the house next door, we knock on the next door neighbor's house and say, look, give me $25 and this lot is yours. You just have to tell us what you're going to do with it. And what we've found is that those next-door neighbors do wonderful things. They create a bigger yard. Maybe they put a garage or they have a garden. Uh, I was just up on a, a site in Flint with four city lots. Now are all combined, and they're producing 15 different crops on those four former city lots. So there, there's all sorts of things we can do. The design really has to incorporate lots of different uses so that we create kind of a of an interesting mosaic of land use. So, I mean, most of the time cities reclaim vacant land and they do so to develop on. So you're doing undevelopment, huh? Some might think that's well, backwards. Yeah, and, you know, I think one of the things that is not well understood is that because a city is becoming smaller does not mean we don't do new development. One of the things that surprises people most when they hear our story is to learn that right in our downtown, in the center of Flint, which had been forgotten, essentially, you know, almost a ghost town for a while. Just in the last year, we've had $100 million of new construction. It, it's not so much that we don't do development, but we do development with an aim toward creating a much more compact and sustainable downtown and then a much more carefully designed collection of neighborhoods that no matter what happens in 10 or 15 or 20 years, we can still count on those neighborhoods being there. So as I understand it, tearing down abandoned buildings in Flint isn't especially new. Tell me about the land bank. The land bank is a public authority that we created seven years ago to acquire, manage, and then ultimately dispose of the worst properties in our community, most of which we get through tax foreclosure. So basically the land bank is a way for us to take a deep breath and figure out what the best use of this land is in the long term. Where does the money come from? The money, interestingly enough, comes from the very same process that used to enrich those infomercial watching speculators. You know, if you stay up too late at night and watch television, you can see these odd infomercials that explain how to invest in these tax sale properties. Oh, yes. You can make millions of dollars with turning over a foreclosed property from the government. Here's a list. Just call this number now. Exactly. I go to Wall Street every year. I borrow the money 
that is owed from all those delinquent taxpayers, give it to all the local governments, and then I collect that high rate of interest that people pay for their delinquent taxes. I borrow money at 3%. I collect it at 18%. The spread gives me money to invest in rehabilitation in the houses that we can rehabilitate. So you started this land bank seven years ago. What's new about what you're proposing now? It's really the strong need for a new master plan. If we had a new design for our city that acknowledges that we're smaller, then when we acquire property, we'd know where we should demolish, where we should rehabilitate, where the gardens should go, where the, where the new meadow should be, where streets should be rebuilt, or perhaps where they should be allowed to go back to nature. It would allow us to be much more wise and much more careful about how we make investment. Who else could benefit from this? Well, I think virtually every city could. But the smart cities that will use these tools are the cities that only have a little bit of worry about this kind of decline that we're facing. So I encourage cities that are not facing wholesale decline to think differently about their urban landscape and don't sit on the sidelines. Get in the game. Get control of those few blighted properties at the earliest point to prevent contagious blight which, like any you know, sort of unchecked disease, can wipe out whole neighborhoods in just a decade. And I, and I, I make that point by saying this. If somebody would have you know, sort of sat down the leaders of Flint 35 years ago and told them what would happen if we just sort of sat on the sidelines and let things run their course, we probably would have come up with this very same tool that we've developed, and it would have worked better. It would have been a lot easier. Dan Kildee is the Genesee County Treasurer and Land Bank Chairman in Flint, Michigan. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Protection Agency plans to firm up its rules on cement plants. Cement kilns pump dust and soot into the air along with toxic emissions like mercury. EPA's regulations come just as cement giant Cimex hopes to start up a new kiln in Arizona. The plant would create jobs for the rural area, but as Laurel Morales of Arizona Public Radio tells us, it would also be just 50 miles upwind from one of America's scenic treasures, the Grand Canyon. For 18 years, it's been Carl Bowman's job to guard the 100-mile view at Grand Canyon. He leans over what looks like a large telescope to check the day's visibility on an air monitor. On our very best days, you know, those, those days that just take your breath away when you walk up to the rim, you look across, the north rim's 10 miles away, and the colors over there are bright. The shadows, the textures are nice and crisp. Nearby, tourists pose for pictures at the popular overlook and take in the glorious crags, cliffs, and brilliant red rocks in every hue. It feels almost like you could reach out and touch it. But as the haze starts to build up, the colors start to get muted, the textures start to kind of flatten out. On those haziest days, you can look across and see the North Rim, but what you're seeing is just this looming blue mass on the other side of the Grand Canyon. Weather, wind direction, and smog blown in from as far away as Los Angeles and Mexico can each affect the view. 
Bowman says that view has noticeably improved over the last two decades thanks to the Clean Air Act. The law forced two power plants that flank the canyon to make big changes. One installed expensive scrubbers, the other closed. But the proposed cement plant could be a step backwards. Anytime there's a proposal for a new facility close to the park, of course, we're, we're concerned. Because when we look at the pollution problems that we see within the park, we find that most of them are caused by air pollutants that are actually generated upwind from us. CEMEX spokeswoman Jennifer Borgen says the company plans to build an environmentally friendly plant. And she points out federal law protects air quality at national parks. It's plain and simple. The plant will need to meet the strictest emissions requirements ever written and enforced by the state and the federal agencies because it's close to the Grand Canyon. If it cannot, it will not receive the permit or not be allowed to operate. It's that simple. Semex plans to burn coal and petroleum coke to fuel the plant. Coke is a byproduct of oil refining that looks like asphalt run through a coffee grinder. Cement plants also cook limestone in kilns five times hotter than pizza ovens. Each step can emit pollutants, especially nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxide, and particles. Northern Arizona University environmental engineer Bill Auberly spends a lot of his time monitoring the air quality at Grand Canyon. He says Semex needs to provide the details. My concern is this, that the Clean Air Act of the United States says that no man-made air pollution shall impair visibility at the Grand Canyon National Park and other parks. Zero. We're not to be fouling the air at Grand Canyon. And Auberly points out Semex has a history of running afoul with the Environmental Protection Agency. Most recently, the company agreed to pay $2 million to resolve complaints in California. Semex does not have a strong environmental track record. They talk about sustainability and their commitment to a greener environment. But it will take all of that and perhaps more to own and operate a Portland cement plant as they have proposed it. The technology does exist to build a clean cement plant, but it's expensive. And the industry isn't flush right now. Semex's sales are down 40 percent compared to last year. If the EPA requires retrofitting, that will be expensive. But Semex's Jennifer Borgen says the company is bullish on the business and committed to a clean facility. We know that the economy is going to come back. We know it's going to bounce back. And demand before the, the recession started in Arizona was very robust. Cement had to be imported into the state, you know, whether it's road building or home building or, or road repairs or bridge repairs. Politics have shifted in Arizona since Governor Janet Napolitano went to work for the Obama administration as Homeland Security chief. A new environmental director and governor want to attract more industry and jobs to the state. And Arizona lawmakers want fewer environmental restrictions. While the Clean Air Act should protect the park, Grand Canyon air quality expert Carl Bowman says the law is tricky. It says that we will protect the resources within the national parks from damage caused by air pollution. But the Clean Air Act gives us virtually no authority to do anything about air pollution. Instead, the act gives that authority to the states and the tribes. So, he says, working with the state will be critical to protecting the air at the park. Semex is now seeking its permit. Once the company files a formal plan, a team of national park specialists will be able to model possible effects. Then state and federal officials will decide whether Semex can build. 
For Living on Earth, I'm Laurel Morales at Grand Canyon. The U.S. and Canada just marked a century of cooperative conservation, the 100th anniversary of the Boundary Waters Treaty. The treaty guides management of the Great Lakes, which contain one-fifth of the world's fresh surface water. And the anniversary comes just as that treaty is being renegotiated to better respond to new challenges like climate change and invasive species. Dr. John Gannon is senior scientist for the International Joint Commission that advises both countries on the lakes. Gannon says the Boundary Waters Treaty was the world's first environmental agreement between two nations. And it came at a time when environmental issues were nearly unheard of. Back in uh, 1900, was kind of the peak of cholera and typhoid fever epidemics. Uh, folks thought that the Great Lakes were so large they couldn't be polluted, so the intakes for drinking water were very close to the untreated sewage outfalls. Uh, so that was a, have a huge problem in 1900. And at the same time, uh, hydropower was uh, starting to be developed on, on the Niagara River, and so there were some conflicts uh, between, of course, Great Britain in behalf of the Dominion of Canada and the United States at the time. So both water quantity and water quality issues were in conflict at that time that spurred the uh, negotiations for the Boundary Waters Treaty. Interesting. So it was initially driven primarily by public health aspects of dealing with sewage and also this hydropower thing. How, how have the concerns evolved over time? Well, the neat thing about the, the, the treaty is that the two governments at the time didn't want their conflicts on water quantity or water quality to get into very costly and time-consuming international courts of law. So the unique aspect is they actually created an independent uh, organization, the International Joint Commission. So the water quality agreement last got revised in 1987, and since then uh, we're much more concerned about climate change and invasive species and, and some other issues. So there's quite a lot of issues that the public is, is interested in. Hmm. Now, there are a lot of uh, thirsty states in the arid regions of the country who look up at all that yummy fresh water in the Great Lakes and say, hey, if we had a long enough straw, we could get some of that. What's the status of, of that kind of uh, thinking? Has that been nipped in the bud, or are there still projects afoot that might uh, draw down water from the Great Lakes and export it? Well, this is a, another, uh, I think, good success story in the, uh, the eight Great Lakes states and the, the province of Ontario and Quebec, and it's called the Great Lakes Compact. There was a proposal for a, a private body to take Great Lakes water and put it in um, a container ship and sell it overseas to those parched places. And so some of the other Great Lakes jurisdictions said, hey, wait, that's our water too. So there is a mechanism in place now where if one jurisdiction wants to uh, use that straw, as you say, uh, the, the others have to approve it. Now, you've been working on this for, for quite a while now. Compare, say, the Lake Erie you saw in the 60s to the lake you see today. Oh, it's it's better. There's no question about that. I, what I like to tell the uh, public is uh, we've got kind of this mix of uh, positive and negative things going on all on at once. So back then, uh, the lake sturgeon was uh, almost completely gone. The walleye population was extremely depressed. Bald eagles uh, weren't reproducing. And uh, so today, uh, we've got recovery of lake sturgeon. Uh, lake whitefish are making a comeback. The walleye is uh, in population is much better shape than it was back then. The bald eagles are nesting uh, on the shoreline throughout the lake. So we've got a lot of these very, very positive things that are going on. 
but then yet uh, zebra mussel came in, and we've got uh, lots more upsets in the system going on. And actually, I've worked on the Great Lakes since 1966 when I was a graduate student, and I never thought I'd ever see in my lifetime some of these bad algae and weed problems that we saw in the 60s come back uh, in Lake Erie today. So we can't let our guard down, and that's the importance, I think, of the the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement and this uh, recent announcement uh, that the governments are updating it. Dr. John Gannon is a senior scientist at the International Joint Commission working to make sure that the Great Lakes stay that way. Great. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Just ahead, the tale of some unsung heroes of the environmental movement, the Coast Guard Service. Stay with us on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Coming up, today's birders resurrect the past to trace changing migration patterns. But first, this note on emerging science from Annie Glosser. Go for a run during the hot summer months, and chances are you'll finish covered in salty, sticky sweat. The driving force behind the drips? Humidity. Instead of griping about the sticky weather, researchers in Germany want to harness it. They've designed a tower-like device that pulls drinking water right out of humid air. The key to its design is hygroscopic brine, a saline solution that dribbles down the tower, much like sweat rolls down our faces. As the salty brine trickles down the tower, it absorbs moisture from the air. The diluted brine is sucked up into a ground-level tank. The tank, using solar energy, boils the brine so that the fresh water evaporates, condenses, and can be whisked away down a separate channel. The reconcentrated brine is then pumped back to the top of the tower, and the cycle repeats. Because the tower relies on solar cells, the design is completely self-sustaining, an important feature for areas where there's little or no electricity. The device could be especially useful for places where lakes and rivers are scarce, yet humidity is high. Researchers hope that if their demonstration facility is successful, each teaspoon drawn from the air and tucked away in the tower's tank could one day add up to a healthy water supply for communities. So when the sweat clings to you this summer, just think. In this weather, you could be squeezing out drinking water. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Annie Glosser. We all know the U.S. Coast Guard for their daring rescues at sea and the watchful eye they keep on our shores. But a new book chronicles the important and often overlooked role the Coast Guard plays in protecting our environment. Ocean conservationist David Helvarg spent years following the Coasties from the hurricane wreckage of Louisiana to an oil spill in San Francisco Bay. His book is called Rescue Warriors, the U.S. Coast Guard, America's Forgotten Heroes. And Helvarg argues that the Coast Guard is actually the country's oldest environmental agency. Well, they, they got their first resource protection assignment back in 1822 predecessor of the modern Coast Guard directed them to go down to the coast of Florida and guard live oak trees. Government warships were built using the oak's dense wood for uh, mast and spars, and 
Uh, timber thieves or scoundrels, they call them, were cutting them down, shipping the lumber north. But the arrival of these well-armed revenue cutters uh, discouraged the thievery. And within a few decades, by the 1860s, the service was patrolling fishing and whaling grounds off Alaska, going after seal poachers. The main cutter was called the Rush, and, and the sealers used to say that you better kill the seals early in order to beat the Rush. And one of their early heroes that you write about was this guy, Mike Healy, who has this great uh, nickname I love, Hell Roarin' Mike Healy. He was a, a very rough and tumble character, and he and the bear, which was his cutter, they saved uh, whalers who were stranded in the ice at one point when the whaling and the sealing was impacting Native Alaskans' food sources. He sailed the bear over to uh, Siberia and bought uh, a herd of reindeer. They uh, dragged them up onto the cutter, brought them back to Alaska, and, and that was the beginning of reindeer herding. Mike Healy was actually African-American, but at the time he had to uh, pass for white in order to have command in the Coast Guard. Uh, he was also uh, hated by both the seal poachers and the temperance societies because he was well-known, <laughs> a hard drinker in all the bars up and down the West Coast. As I understand it from your, your book, that their work in the early Alaskan frontier really influenced a lot of the uh, later uh, environmental items that they would take on as their duty. Well, it was certainly fisheries, which was vital in early Alaska and continues to be so. For example, last Easter, a factory trawler sank in 20-foot seas at night, and uh, the Coast Guard was able to coordinate a rescue in which they, they saved the lives of 42 out of those 47 fishermen. One of the guys uh, mentioned to me it's kind of a love-hate relationship with the fishermen. They save them, but they also make sure that they're working within the law to protect the resource. And, and when there are pirate fishers out there, they make the bust. It, you wrote about a a, a big uh, bust of fishery pirates that happened. Uh, when is this? Late late eighties, early nineties. They were chasing down these uh, Taiwanese uh, salmon fisheries. Yeah, late eighties, early nineties. Uh, in the North Pacific, there was a whole legal drift net fisheries. Over a thousand boats from Asia that were laying out these walls of death, these monofilament nets that could stretch thirty miles in length, killing thousands of dolphins and small whales and seabirds. And within this fleet, there was a small pirate operation. About 10% of them were taking salmon at sea. And there was a treaty between Japan, the U.S., Canada, and Russia that these salmon should only uh, be caught when they returned to their home rivers. They set up a sting, and they went out to sea, met one of these pirate fleets. And as the captains of these pirate vessels were coming on board with uh, hundreds of tons of, of hot salmon... The Coast Guard Cutter Morgenthau came over the horizon and two C-130s dropped out of the clouds, you know, the klaxons ringing and they were dropping flares and the pirates fled. And even though Greenpeace and other environmentalists had been identifying this destructive fishery as impacting the ecosystem in the North Pacific, it was when the Coast Guard made this bust and, and recognized that hundreds of millions of dollars of valuable salmon were being taken that the U.S. joined with other Pacific powers, and, and the U.N. finally banned these high-sea drift nets. You know, this is amazing work they do. They're, they're police on the high seas. Uh, they do these amazing rescues. They're protecting our natural resources. And yet, the Coast Guard, it, it's like they're the Rodney Dangerfield of the military. They just don't get respect. Now, it's, it's funny. I've I talked to a lot of young Coasties who say, you know, I, I want to serve my country, but I want to be in a service that saves lives rather than takes them. And they do. They, they respond to 125 distress signals every day. They save 15 people on average every day. Wow. And, and they also do the resource protection, oil spill response. But the oil spill response, people are often referred to in the service as duck scrubbers and uh, the fisheries guys as fish huggers. 
which seems unfair because they don't call the uh, maritime safety and security teams, they don't call them gun huggers. However, I think they, they really did have their moment in the sun and did get good recognition for what the, the good work they did during uh, the rescue following Hurricane Katrina. Uh, you were there, and uh, if I recall correctly, uh, this was described as basically the only competent uh, branch of government that was functioning down there. Yep. They went in and they saved over 33,000 people in the first week after Katrina when much of the rest of the federal government was absent without leave. It was it was the Coasties and the Louisiana Fish and Game who were out there pulling people off of rooftops and getting people out of flooded areas and, and to safety. When I was down there, it, it reminded me of a lot of war zones I'd, I'd been in with maybe fewer casualties, about 1,600 deaths, but far wider destruction. And uh, the Coast Guard you know, does what it does every hurricane season. They move their people out of the way of the approaching storm, just positioning them strategically around it and then surge back in afterwards. You also write about another Coast Guard mission that, in your opinion, did not go so well, and that was when a container ship uh, spilled its its bunker fuel in the in the San Francisco Bay. And that, that's basically your backyard. Yeah, I, I literally had, you know, oiled and, and dead ducks and uh, wildlife washing up behind my townhouse in uh, the East Bay. And the Coast Guard response was not good. You know, that morning that, that the Costco Busan hit the bridge and spilled 53,000 gallons of bunker fuel, which is like the dregs of the petroleum process. There's nothing you can refine after bunker fuel other than roofing tar. And Admiral Bone, who, who came from a safety and environmental background, was, was telling me that morning that because of the heavy emphasis on security since 9-11, that the Coast Guard's been losing some core competencies in safety and stewardship, environmental protection. You quote uh, one Coast Guard official as saying that the first phase of her career was defined by the Exxon Valdez and the second phase by 9-11. Yeah, and I suspect had uh, it been a terrorist who'd blown up that ship, their MIST teams, their anti-terrorist maritime safety and security teams would have been on it within minutes. There's been a a huge expansion of funding since 9-11, but almost all of it on the security side. And we haven't seen similar growth in terms of ship safety, although the global shipping fleet is expanding, or maritime stewardship, although we're seeing the collapse of uh, marine wildlife and food security with the loss of fisheries. You know, we're no longer in a world in which we can respond to all crisis with guns. We have to be able to respond to an unknowable range of threats in a world that's two-thirds salt water. And to me, that response is best done by the well-trained gals and guys of the Coast Guard. David Helvarg founded the coastal conservation group Blue Frontier Campaign, and his new book is called Rescue Warriors, the U.S. Coast Guard, America's Forgotten Heroes. David, thanks very much. Thank you. Birders have a long history of helping scientists. It's so long, in fact, that many records of their sightings now exist only as dusty cards tucked away in basements. But one current effort has volunteers organizing bird observations from the 19th century to make them accessible. Amy Mayer visited the home of a volunteer in Acton, Massachusetts, and has our story. The living room in Ken Pauley's suburban Boston home has windows on three sides. He keeps binoculars handy to watch the geese on the pond, the hummingbirds at the feeders, and the red-winged blackbirds landing on the closest tree. 
On a cool, wet morning, this 73-year-old nature lover steps outside and leads the way along trails and boardwalks over his own private wetland. Polly points to the five nesting boxes he maintains for the ducks and the native plants that will create a meadow as they grow all summer. The mini conservation area on his 10 acres is rich with wild blueberry and azalea bushes and the cacophony of bird songs. That's a red-winged blackbird. Polly began birding as a child in the Blue Hills just outside Boston and quickly befriended adult birders who took him further afield. When he was 12 or 13, a friend invited him to go birding with a legendary pair. So we jumped in his car, drove out to Ipswich River Valley Sanctuary, and met the two guys. One was a white-haired gentleman, another guy was a Brit. And the British fellow was um, Carl Fisher, quite an ornithologist in uh, England. And the other fellow was Roger Torrey Peterson. Clutching his Pete, a field guide by the famous ornithologist, Polly walked and whispered with Peterson during the warbler migration. We were walking along, and Roger and I would just be walking. We'd stop and sing, Black-Throated Green, which is my songs. And I'd say, Yellow Wobbler. And uh, we would be just calling out because of the sounds. So for about three weekends, I birded with Roger and Carl Fisher and uh, Arthur Katz. And it was a phenomenal experience because talk about you know, people dedicated to ornithology. And, of course, to be birding with the author of the book that I've got in my hand was a a great thrill. Polly's passion for birding folded into his 43-year career as an educator at Boston's Museum of Science. He even leads safaris in Tanzania. Now retired, he brings his love of birds inside, too. Now I have to log in, so I use my... Email address. Polly sits at a small desk beside a picture window and enters the website for the North American Bird Phenology Program. It's a project sponsored by the U.S. Geological Survey to make six million cards useful. The cards document sightings from volunteer birders between 1880 and 1970. Polly squints at the JPEG image that appears on the screen. Which dates what it is, where it was located, who the birder was, The cards contain the bird species, location, dates, and observer's name. Polly says he's probably transcribed about 60 cards. That's part of the 70,000 cards documented so far by volunteers across the country. They rely on another group of bird lovers who go to the USGS office in Laurel, Maryland, six days a week to scan them in. USGS biologist Jessica Zelt coordinates the program. We've basically pulled all these cards out of storage. They've been stored for about 40 years um, in basements and attics and storage facilities. And we're finally getting the recognition of how important these cards are. So we were able to pull them out, and we're in the process now of digitizing them. Most of the birders were trained naturalists and scientists. Their observations tell the story of changing habitats and migration patterns. I have here another card, um, which was on the ivory-billed woodpecker. It was in Jane Green Swamp, Florida, and it says here that Henry Redding saw four in January of 1923, and that was recorded in December uh, 28th. We have a lot of extinct species um, where there were just maybe, sometimes there were only a few sightings left, you know, during 1880 when it had started, but, you know, we have recordings of um, passenger pigeons. I think we have uh, records of the great auk. 
And there are introduced species seen as exotic a hundred years ago that are now familiar, such as starlings and house sparrows. Habitats also change. Cardinals rarely lived in New England in the mid-20th century, but now they're permanent residents here. Zelt says the data from the cards can help quantify these types of changes, and she's collecting records kept by researchers since 1970 to create a 120-year data set that she says really could um, show us a lot about what's happening with bird migration and climate change and what the effect is of climate change on these birds on a nationwide scale. While Polly is interested in the science and happy to be helping with it, when he's transcribing, he's got his eye out for his boyhood heroes. I'm, I'm hoping it would become a cross, you know, um, Arthur Katz or, you know, um, Roger Tory Peterson. I haven't come across a card from him yet, but I suspect that there's probably some cards of his out there, and it'd be kind of fun to have one of those cards show up. Even if it doesn't, Polly enjoys being among the volunteers, making this vast information accessible to researchers. For Living on Earth, I'm Amy Mayer in Acton, Massachusetts. On the next Living on Earth, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, the world went on guard against nuclear terrorism. So how are we doing? On the current trajectory, terrorists will successfully conduct a nuclear or biological terrorist attack somewhere in the world in the next five years. Why we're less safe now than we were just five years ago. Next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week in the company of a three-toed woodpecker. Now, most woodpeckers have four toes on each foot, but the three-toed and black-backed woodpeckers are unusual, with only three. These birds prefer dead trees and coniferous forests and have a broad range across North America. Martin Stewart recorded the drums and squeaks of this American three-toed woodpecker for the CD, The Owl and the Woodpecker. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Bolinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Lee Smith, Ike Sriskandaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Annie Glosser and Lisa Song. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. 
the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs around the world. Uncommon heroes dedicated to the common good. Learn more at Skoll.org. And Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Pax World for tomorrow. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PRI Public Radio International.